Hello, friends, and welcome to this special episode of Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. I'm your host and Bible guide, Pastor Paul Carter. Now, most of the time here on the program, we work our way verse by verse and chapter by chapter through entire books of the Bible. That's our bread and butter. But from time to time, it is useful and necessary to zoom out and to ask big questions of the Bible as a whole. And that's what I want to do in this episode. I want to ask the question, how can I reach out to people in the LGBTQ plus community with love and gospel concern without compromising on the authority of Holy Scripture? Here to help me answer that question, I have Pastor Guy Hammond and Pastor Michael Cron. Gentlemen, brothers, welcome to the program. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. Well, earlier this day, uh, Guy, Michael, and myself participated in a resource event that was dedicated to answering that very question. Uh, Guy gave the opening address, and then he joined us on a panel that I facilitated that included input from a medical doctor, a lawyer, a therapist, uh, a couple of public school teachers, uh, a business leader, and several concerned parents. We conducted that meeting under the Chatham House rules. Now, don't feel bad if you don't know what those are. I didn't know what they are. I had to Google them myself. But the Chatham House rules basically are rules governing a conversation like that, an unrecorded conversation, an off-the-record conversation. And what it stipulates is that we're free to refer to any of the insights that were gathered out of that conversation without attributing them to any particular contributor. And uh, we'll do our best to hold ourselves to that commitment in this conversation. We'll be able to refer to some of the things we heard there, uh, but we won't say anything too specific that would put anyone on the hook. We just wanted to provide something of a summary for those who couldn't be here. And as pastors, all three of us in this conversation are pastors. As pastors, we enjoy certain legal and constitutional protections uh, that not everybody is subject to. So we just thought it would be helpful to conduct a shorter version of that conversation and to release it for you here. Now, each of these gentlemen has a personal connection to this issue. They've been thinking about it, uh, wrestling with it, writing on it, et cetera, for far longer than most of us. And I'll leave it to them to share as much or as little personal detail as they choose. But I do want to glean some of the helpful counsel and input that was just generated through our panel. So, Guy, let me start by throwing out a fairly simple question, fairly straightforward question to you. What should a parent out there do if their son or daughter comes out to them as gay? What should their response be? Yeah, a tremendous question. You know, when a child comes home and announces something like that, it's uh, incredibly difficult and devastating for a parent to hear that kind of news. I often tell parents, you know, the, the first thing you should say is probably not the first thing you think. You really need That's good to... advice just in general, isn't, isn't it? Isn't it though? No kidding. <laughs> Um, you know, I think, you know, you find your own language, but you say something akin to, you know, son or daughter, uh, listen, you're my child. I love you. There isn't anything you could say or do that would let me think less of you. I'm here for you. Now you've had probably months and even years to think about this. I'm just hearing about this for the first time. So if you could give mom and dad a break and give us a day or two to think about this, pray about this, uh, take in this newly revealed information, uh, and then we'd love to talk some more. We want to hear your story. Why are you saying this? Where did you, what's giving you this reason to, uh, to come home and make this uh, pronouncement? Um, and, uh, what you want to do is you want to keep the conversation going. Yeah. Uh, depending on the age of your child, especially if they're younger, chances may be high that 
what they're experiencing is more socially driven than uh, uh, the reality that they're actually same-sex attracted. Uh, but telling that to your child may not be the best strategy. To them, uh, they think it's real, and so I think you need to go along with that and um, then be able to challenge your conclusions as you hear more. But what you want to do is keep the conversation going. That's good. Now, just to follow up on that a little bit, uh, we had a little conversation on the panel about whether or not people are born gay, whether that's useful terminology or that, or whether it's more complicated. Any, anything that you'd want to share by way of advice to parents? I, I'm assuming that in, in most cases, when a child comes out to a parent and says, I'm gay, they're going to say, this is who I am. This is my identity. I was born this way. And that puts a lot of pressure on the parent to affirm that. Uh, and, and so I'm just curious what advice or counsel you might have. There's no study out there that shows definitively that people are born gay. Um, you know, I think uh, the reality is is that uh, we really don't know 100% uh, the causation of same-sex attraction, but uh, certainly the narrative is out there that people are born this way. But I do think it's important for the parent to recognize that these are complex things. There are hundreds of contributing influences that help determine what people are attracted to. How much of it is nature? How much of it is nurture? We don't know for sure. But it is certainly wrong to rush to the conclusion that uh, people are just born this way or that somehow it's the parent's fault or whatever number of ways we we try to come up with answers to this complex uh, situation. But no, science is yet to prove definitively that people are born this way. Yeah, and in the panel, you you very helpfully moved it beyond that potential logjam anyway by saying, hey, listen, you know, many of us may have uh, desires that have been a part of our makeup for as long as we can remember that are not necessarily desires we should be paying a great deal of attention to, or, or they may be desires that need to be brought under the Lordship of Christ. That's not just true for the person feeling same-sex attracted. That's true for everybody. Oh my gosh, is that ever the case? Yeah. Uh, everybody has to submit their sexuality to, to Christ. But, you know, I would say, especially to the parent, if, if little Johnny comes home at the age of 12 and announces he thinks he's gay or trans or whatever, listen, the, 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 one of the worst mistakes you can make is to freak out. Right. Uh, stay calm, work your way <laughs> through this. The chances are significantly high that... By the time they're 18, they will have changed their mind a couple of times anyway. Yeah. Uh, you know, when I was 12, I wanted to be a pirate. Uh, that doesn't mean that my parents were going to pluck out an eye and chop off a leg and give me a peg leg. No, they knew that as time went on, I would change my goals of what I wanted to be. Kids are going to come up uh, with a lot of different things in their youth. You don't want to freak out. You want to stay calm. And, and you know, if it does turn out that your child is genuinely same-sex attracted or even going through uh, where they feel like they're trans... Uh, Here's the biggest thing we need to be concerned about our children, and that is their spirituality. And there's no reason why your same-sex attracted child can't become a Christian and live in an incredibly faithful and godly life that you as a parent wouldn't be just so proud of. So uh, if it really is true that your child is is uh, struggling with same-sex attraction issues, listen, the ultimate goal is that your child... Uh, become a Christian, not that your child be heterosexually attracted. There's nowhere in the Bible that says you have to be heterosexually attracted to be a faithful Christian. Uh, I, my tagline that I use all the time is, is that for the Christian, the opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality. For the Christian, the opposite of homosexuality is holiness, mm. that we strive to live holy lives before the Lord. And that's what we all have to do. So yeah. for your, your child, that would be the goal too. Yeah, and I think it gives us a great opportunity as parents to to talk to our children about uh, what the Lordship of Jesus means. Yeah, you said there, you know, all of us have to submit our sexuality that's to right. the Lordship of Jesus. I think that's so important. There's a great gospel conversation that I think this, you know, you talked about this sort of traumatic experience for mom and dad having a conversation with yeah. a child about something they never dreamed, they never wanted to have. And uh, I love the idea of a pause. 
But at the same time, uh, I love the idea of coming back to that prepared to talk about the gospel and prepared to talk about big things. You know, what, what is desire? How much, you know, the, the Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things and right. desperately wicked. Who can know it? So yes. how much should we be trusting our desires? Oh my gosh. Uh, Boy, there's how, a lesson, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. <laughs> how much authority do we give to all of our inclinations and, and oh desires, particularly as as young people. And and so for all of us, you, you know, for whether our children are same-sex attracted or not, for all of us, part of parenting our kids in the gospel is helping them deprioritize, not delegitimize feelings and desires, but deprioritize those That's things. That's fantastic. Love that wording. You said it better than I just did. Thank you. That's great. Well, it's like I said, it's true for all of us and it's true wow. in, in, in a variety of, of contexts, particularly when we're talking to young people. Michael, I, I want to bring you in um, in the same way that a number of parents uh, are, are trying to provide leadership to children who may be feeling same-sex attracted. One of the uh, new phenomenon, and I think that's an appropriate way of putting it, uh, is the number of children all of a sudden who are identifying as uh, transgender. And uh, it really has come on. I mean, I I know for myself, when I was a youth pastor 25 years ago, I was certainly talking about same-sex attraction uh, issues, uh, lesbian, gay, etc. But I don't recall ever even using the word transgender as a youth pastor. I don't remember even hearing that word until about a decade ago. So this is somewhat newer. And uh, there is, uh, you used in the panel the term uh, social contagion. It does seem to be a bit of a gathering wave. How would you advise a parent whose child comes to them uh, saying, I'm, I'm transgender. I've got a new name I want you to use. I've got new pronouns. Well, how would you advise a parent in that situation? Yeah, it really has come on very quickly. We live in a, a small town, fairly conservative area of Ontario, and yet it's very prevalent. We've had many conversations with many parents. Hmm. And so I'll assume from that that in other areas of the province is equally epidemic uh, with the same issue. Um, I guess the short answer to your question is to not go along with it as a parent. I'll give you a caveat in a bit. Yeah. But um, yeah, according to the conversations that we've had, the reading that we've done, you uh, if you go along with the name and the pronouns, you are setting that person in an excel- at an accelerated speed down that path, uh, which is called socially transitioning. That's sort of the first step is to change mm-hmm. name and pronouns, whereas the next step might be surgeries and, and hormones and things like that. Having said that, gender dysphoria is a real thing, right? and there are ways to mitigate the effect. I mean, of course, you want to be talking to medical professionals about this, about this condition, but if this does genuinely cause your child uh, a serious amount of emotional despair, there are ways to not use their biological or their um, birth name as much mm-hmm. um, as a bit of a compromise. Um, but. Having said all that, there is some risk involved in this as well, yeah. because we know that there's um, Bill C-4, uh, the uh, human rights um, violations is a possibility as well, and there's a children's aid society that takes a pretty hard line in the opposite direction of what most Christian parents are thinking. And so uh, for parents going through this, there's some, some trepidation involved. Now, Michael, I want to go back to something that we talked about in an offline conversation. Uh, You mentioned a study that you had uh, been looking at. I had seen something very similar that indicated that a very high percentage of young children who experience some gender dysphoria will uh, retransition or detransition back to a gender identity that aligns with their biological identity uh, later in life in their mid in their mid twenties. But that percentage decreases 
precipitously mm-hmm. if they have fully socially transitioned. And that's why you're mentioning that you, you want to uh, sort of resist or uh, dig your heels in a little bit. You, you mentioned a bit of a, a qualifier that you'll add. You can add yeah. that if you wish. Yeah. But there, there is some danger in going along with that social transition. Yeah, the, the wise path seems to be one called watchful waiting, mm. uh, recognizing that people who experience gender dysphoria, the large majority of them will not persist in that. And so there's an excellent uh, doctor in Toronto named uh, Dr. Kenneth Zucker mm. who champions this cause and has been um, <laughs> lambasted for it. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, but that seems to be... The opposite of what we're seeing now, which is when a child comes out as transgender, a lot of what we're seeing in public health is sort of trying to fast track them into treatments that will do irreversible damage to them. Right. And so we have to, we we certainly have to guard against that. Yeah, the one caveat that I would mention as far as name and pronouns is if you, if you take your child to a a professional of some sort, and you should certainly have pre-conversations with that professional to see where they are at on this issue and how they're, what kind of guidance they're going to give your child. But if you would uh, picture it as this professional using their name and pronouns as a way to enter their world, right. as a way to go into that world with them and lead them back or, or you know, sort of walk, inhabit that place with them in order to bring them back uh, to the place where you'd like them to be. So that'd be the one caveat that I would, that I would add. Now, you mentioned some of these uh, harmful treatments. Obviously, I, I said in the preamble to our, our panel discussion, I uh, want to be clear, you're not receiving legal advice. You're not receiving medical advice. We had uh, we had lawyers and doctors on the panel, but uh, we wanted to be clear we weren't giving legal advice or, or medical advice. Uh, but in reality, this information is in the public domain. Uh, there are waiver forms that children have to sign and parents uh, where parental consent is required have to sign that indicate the medical risks associated with these procedures. Mm-hmm. And and so there is wisdom in parents doing everything they can to stall and, and slow the the process because some of these treatments are hard to, to walk back from. Yeah. Yeah. Some are impossible to walk back from. Yeah. Yeah. So again it's it's you need to do your homework on the on right. the medical help that you that you seek for for your children. Um, because there are this is not just accepted by everyone in the medical profession, and actually medical professionals are quite um, frustrated with how fast-tracked this is. Yeah. And so, yeah, if, if you're if you're worried about these treatments being offered to your child, make sure you take them to someone who believes in watchful waiting or right. will take more of a, 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 you know, just a patient approach and sort of looking at the, the entire, like we heard on the panel tonight, deal with the entire person. There's a number of things that are going on there. We don't need to just affirm and fast track this one thing. So just to summarize, I mean, I've got, I know a lot of, a lot of the members here of our church are going to be listening to this because this is an active issue in our congregation. Mm-hmm. If I could just boil this down right to street level, it almost sounds like the path of wisdom here for parents and grand, or, well, let's just start with parents, with parents is keep the conversation going um, and drag your feet and go as slow as humanly possible because it does seem that as children uh, exit sort of the nadir of psychological trauma associated with normal adolescence anyway, mm-hmm. they they do start coming back to their senses, as it, as it yep. were, coming back to uh, a gender identity that aligns with biological sex. So if yep. you can drag your feet and keep the relationship open and have gospel conversation, there is great hope. Is that Absolutely. a fair summary? Absolutely. Yep. Yeah, we heard a little bit about that tonight. Yep. Uh, from some of those who are working alongside of of young people experiencing some of these uh, some of these dysphoria, 
I, I want to switch gears slightly. Some, some people would argue that we shouldn't even be having this conversation, uh, that this is not a gospel issue, that this is secondary or tertiary at best. Uh, but I know I don't see it that way, and I know that neither of, of you see it this way as well. So, Guy, let me start with you. Why is this a gospel issue? And what does the gospel have to say in terms of hope for gay, lesbian, same-sex attracted people? You know, my story is, is that I lived as a gay man until I was 24 years old and had a boyfriend for 10 years, uh, had acted out hundreds of times in anonymous sexual encounters before finally becoming a Christian. And I think, um, you know, my story is such that once I became a Christian, I left my gay life behind forever. Although I'm still homosexually attracted, that hasn't changed. Uh, but it's a, it's a, uh, a gospel imperative that uh, we as Christians understand the necessity of being able to have the tools necessary to share the good news of Jesus with our gay friends and neighbors. So this is why we're having this conversation. This is why it's important. Christians need the bridge building language to know how to reach out to their gay friends and neighbors for Christ. And uh, so uh, there's that. And then also uh, the other thing that is alarming to me is how many Christians have been so easily persuaded to change their stance on sexual ethics based on things they've seen on social media uh, nice stories that they've heard, emotion, and uh, how many Christians are so willing to capitulate to what uh, the gay rights movement is selling in terms of gay-affirming churches and whatnot. And uh, so that's very alarming. So Christians need to uh, go back to having a deep-seated belief that the Bible is the inerrant Word of God. And uh, that means that we're going to be countercultural. I don't know if the traditional biblical sexual ethic has ever been yeah. popular. It probably wasn't popular 2,000 years ago, and it's not popular today, and it never will be. But Christians cannot capitulate or give in on what it is that uh, culture is selling today. But I've been so alarmed by how many Christians, it seems, are starting to uh, question the authority of Scripture in this regard. So that's another reason why it's really important we're having this conversation. Michael, I know that, that you believe this is a gospel issue as well. What, what would you add to that? The word that comes to mind is identity. I mean, yeah. any identity issue is a is a gospel issue. So mm-hmm. where, you know, where does this place us? Um, as was mentioned on the panel a couple of times, it's important that inside of our churches and in our homes we talk about uh, sin in ways that are personal, yeah. in that we all struggle with desires and with compulsions that need to be mortified, that need to be mm-hmm. put to death. And so where in the past the church might have uh, received this sort of admission or confession with a oh no god didn't die or jesus didn't die for that kind of sin yeah uh, and yet he did and we're all dealing with things like this so it doesn't make doesn't give any of those a pass but it puts us all on the same footing that we are all trying to put to death the desires of the flesh of which this is another one the other thing i would say uh paul is that um you know so many christians just run, run on the assumption that lgbtq people are not interested in jesus um and so there's a whole demographic of the world's population that a lot of Christians are just ignoring because they just assume, rush to the assumption that these people aren't open to the gospel. But uh, I would like to say that there are many people in the LGBTQ community who have not given up on the spiritual moorings that they were raised with and would love to be able to reinvestigate uh, you know, God, Jesus, Bible, but they need a safe place to be able to do that. Yeah, and so yeah. uh, that's why it's important we're having this conversation because Jesus loves these people. God loves these people tremendously. And so we need to be able to know how to dialogue and talk about these issues with our LGBTQ friends and neighbors so that we can help them uh, become Christian. And we need to preserve for them in love the real gospel. 
you know, one of my concerns is that under the pressure of, of the novelty of these issues, like we, we do feel unprepared. I mean, that's why we had this panel tonight, because we, we don't feel prepared to have gospel conversations in this particular context. Under the pressure of that novelty, newness, and then also just the social pressure of, you know, appearing on the wrong side of history and all these other things, I think we have dangerously reduced the gospel to an unsaving gospel. Listen, as a heterosexual man, a big part of me coming to what I think I would call saving faith was the wrestle of realizing I had to submit my heterosexual hmm. sexual yes. self mm-hmm. to the lordship of That's Jesus. Right. I've got news for you. I, I am not wired for biblical sexuality, right? <laughs> like I have inclinations and orientations that lead me away from the design of God as, as put forth in Holy yeah. Scripture. And so a big part of my faith wrestle was submitting my sexuality to the Lordship of Jesus. But in doing that, I found I, every every step, every agonizing step in the direction of obedience was met with grace, uh, was was met with an outpouring. And that's that's the gospel I want to preserve and, and present yeah. to my LGBTQ friends. And yes. so I don't want to see us alter the DNA of the gospel uh, because it's in that wrestle of submitting all of who we are to what the Bible says. Like part of becoming a Christian is realizing I am who God says I am. Mm. Like that's where the gospel begins, right? Recognizing that God is large and in charge. He is sovereign over our identity. His word is more authoritative than our desires. Uh, that That is the wrestle uh, that that puts us through the narrow gate that, that comes into the kingdom. And I want to preserve that gospel and that wrestle for our LGBTQ friends. But then I also want to preserve the transforming power of the gospel. That's right. Like the gospel ends with, with us having transformed hearts filled with the Holy Spirit of God, changed by one degree of glory to the next into the same image as Jesus Christ, who, by the way, was a celibate man. You know, when I was becoming a Christian um, at the age of 24, uh, you know, um, the, the, the thing that sold me to give up my gay life, break up with my boyfriend, and quit being involved in all these anonymous sexual encounters was that uh, people were willing to uh, present Jesus to me in such a way that I became so impressed with Jesus that I couldn't imagine not following him. Mm. Um, I didn't leave homosexuality when I did because I thought homosexuality was so bad. The truth is homosexuality was a good friend to me for a lot of years. Mm. Uh, I was a part of a safe community. I wasn't the center of people's jokes. I was able to give love and receive love. Homosexuality for me was working in a lot of ways. I didn't leave it because I believed it was so bad. I decided to leave homosexuality because somebody was able to prove to me with an open Bible how much better Jesus is. That Jesus was going to be able to meet my emotional, relational, and spiritual deficits way better than homosexuality ever could. And when I became convinced of that, then I was willing to leave my gay life to follow Jesus. And, you know, of course, I can tell you now with the gift of 2020 hindsight and 35 years of Christianity that absolutely. Uh, even though I'm still homosexually attracted, following Jesus is the best thing that's ever happened to me. I wouldn't go back to my old gay life for anything. You couldn't pay me enough for that because Jesus has been able to meet my emotional, relational, and spiritual deficits Mm. way better than homosexuality or anything else uh, Satan has tried to sold me uh, has ever been able to. So Jesus is the real deal, and I became convinced of that 35 years ago, and it's working. Oh, that's great. Well, Guy, you mentioned something uh, in in your testimony that I thought was really interesting. You, you said that you attended a church for two years as a gay man. Yeah. Sitting sitting under the sound That's of the right. gospel, sitting under the sound of the word preached, before you got to the place where you were ready to, to really hear that with faith, to repent, That's put right. your trust in Jesus. 
what did that church do? I, I, I'm, I want to replicate that. I, I would love, <laughs> I would love someone to stand up and say, I've attended Cornerstone for three years or two years as a, as a gay man or as a gay woman or as a transgender person. And, and I have felt welcomed and received here. Um, and, and I've heard the gospel and, and today I'm coming to Christ as my Lord and savior. I'm, I'm working towards hearing that testimony in our church. So tell me what that church did well, that you could sit there for two years as a gay man and hear the gospel. Uh, they were incredibly um, kind, hospitable, non-judgmental. They made it clear to me from the very beginning that they believed that homosexuality was not representative of what God intended for human sexuality. I knew that from the beginning, but they also stressed to me how glad they were that I was attending. They wanted me to feel welcome. And then they proved it. They had me into their homes. Uh, I went out to movies with these people. I spent time with them. They shared their life with me. They even shared areas of struggle and weakness that they had in their life. Uh, So they were authentic and real with me, which only made me want to be authentic and real with them. Uh, And then they were patient. They gave me time room and space to figure things out. Uh, These were complex things that I was involved in. It's kind of like, you know, when you scramble an egg, how do you unscramble an egg? I mean, you know, my life had become so scrambled. It took a couple of years for me to get some of the unscrambling done. So this church was incredibly patient with me, again, giving me time, room, and space and, and allowing me to ask questions. And um, and they were just so loving and hospitable. I couldn't imagine uh, living my life without being a part of that body. So those things they did really, really well. But they didn't hoodwink, hoodwink me. Um, they let me know from the very beginning that uh, homosexuality was out of line of what God intended for human sexuality but that's okay we're so glad you're here please keep coming we'll let's figure this out together with an open bible and honest conversation and then they just loved me like crazy yeah i mean has anybody ever walked through the doors of a church for the first time with a life already in conformity with (laughs) right no kidding yeah yeah, yeah. your story sounds so much like rosaria butterfield's story ah that's right yeah big hero of mine actually love her work that's right very similar Hmm. guy i want to imagine that maybe our churches have have been that place where somebody could come a transgender person or somebody struggling with same-sex attraction and sit for two years under the sound of the gospel and let's say they did what you did and they 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 made a real profession of faith they they repented and and through faith in christ came into right relationship with god what would you say to them on the other side of that uh what would you say to them about the changes that they would now need to make in order to walk faithfully with jesus as a saved spirit-filled person and then michael i'm gonna i'm gonna come to you on the on the same topic but from the trans uh talking to somebody who's made that decision as a person uh struggling with transgender uh feelings and gender dysphoria so guy first to you what would you say to somebody on the other side of, of that decision well we're all called to repentance and to live in line with uh with with uh, the standard that god has set before us you know for me it meant that I was no longer, uh, for the rest of my life, going to be involved in any kind of homosexual activity. It meant that I would never be in an intimate relationship or a romantic relationship with someone of the same gender. That was a huge cost for me to count because I couldn't imagine ever being interested in a female. I'd never had a girlfriend before. I'd never kissed a girl before. I I wasn't attracted to women. So when I was becoming a Christian, uh, you know, it appeared to me that I was making a decision to live a celibate life for the rest of my life. It wasn't going to be my first choice. I wanted to be able to experience all that life had to offer with another human being. However, uh, I just couldn't imagine how that would be possible. So to me, it meant I was going to 
live a celibate life before the Lord. And I thought, you know what, if Jesus can die for me on the cross, for pity's sakes, I can be celibate. So I'm willing to do this uh, in order to follow Christ. Um, so, uh, and then I had to make some serious decisions about putting some boundaries in my life, uh, that I was going to live my life with guardrails. I was going to have to live my Christian life really seriously. Uh, so I put boundaries in my life immediately about, uh, where I was going to go, the kind of people I was going to hang around with, the parts of the city that I could no longer go to. Um, and I've lived with boundaries and a lot of real important guardrails in my life now for 35 years. Uh, that's one of the reasons why I can say that. I have not participated in any kind of homosexual activity since my conversion. The other thing that was really helpful for me, uh, Paul, was I made a decision at baptism that I was going to live an authentic, real, and open life, that I was going to continue to bring my temptations uh, and my areas of struggle and weakness into the light so that I could have accountability, so that people could know who I really was. I knew that if Guy Hammond was going to spend all of his time hiding and not being real about what the, his areas of struggle and weakness, uh, I wouldn't have made it. So living an authentic life and, and talking about, with trusted spiritual advisors about who I really am, the good, the bad, the ugly, and the nasty of Guy Hammond, and living like that consistently for 35 years has been probably one of the greatest tools that I have used to uh, stay faithful to God over the years. That's good. Michael, let me uh, throw a similar question to you. So imagine your church uh, has been really kind. They've been gracious and loving. They've been hospitable. They've built a relationship with a person uh, who identifies as transgender. And that person sits under the sound of the gospel for a couple of years, comes forward and gives their life to Christ, makes a profession of faith, is wonderfully and truly saved and filled with the Holy Spirit. Now you're their pastor and you come alongside of them, what do you say? Yeah, I would keep coming back to telling people and demonstrating to them that we all have common cause in our struggle against sin. Mm. And so uh, we try to speak the way Scripture speaks and that we make confrontation common, we make confession common, and therefore we make repentance common. Mm. Uh, so in that way, not uh, always centering on this sin as some sort of special category of sin, but that we all struggle with with these types of sins one way or another. But in the end, um, to say specifically what I would also say generally is that we need to live according to the gender and identity that God assigned for us. Hmm. Um, And whether that means uh, turning away from some of these distorted desires or, as you mentioned, heterosexual distorted desires. And, yeah, again, just just sort of creating... creating, um, level ground for, for each person in the church so that they're not categorized as some sort of a special case. Yeah. So this is complex stuff. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, you know, if you're dealing with a, a trans individual who's come to faith in Christ, obviously, in order for them to get to that point, they would their heart would, certainly would need to change in repentance to recognize that uh, the decision that they made um, earlier in life was a mistake. Um, but moving forward, you know, a, a trans individual, what does repentance look like for that person? I think, you know, a, a good guideline for us to follow in the church would be principles over practice. Uh, that, you know, for every person, it's going to look different. I think the church would need to have an uncommon patience while people uh, try to unscramble their lives. And uh, I think a trans person would need to be on the trajectory of going back to God's initial intent for their life, but that would look different for every person. Can you imagine the immense challenge it would be for a trans individual who would maybe uh, had transitioned for 
uh, for many years. Even medically, yeah. yeah. Even medically, yeah. The, the, yeah. the financial cost involved, the uh, the, the challenge that would be involved in in different kinds of surgeries and going off different kinds of hormones. Listen, uh, not to mention the, the possibility of there being a mental health component. The church would need to move forward with incredible compassion and empathy uh, and incredible patience, yeah, and recognize that this really will look different for every individual person. What does this look like at the end for the trans- transition person who's on the trajectory of going to God? God's initial intent for their life. It's going to look different for every person, but can we be patient enough in the church to not put um, arbitrary t- arbitrary timelines on people and uh, expectations that the church has that may not be fair to be uh, putting on that individual? Yeah. I love that word you used about unscramble. There's a sense in, yeah. in, in which what you both described is just how you disciple anyone who's come, come to Christ yeah. uh, out of a, a, an unconverted background. Every heterosexual uh, person that I've ever uh, seen come to Christ and be discipled has some unscrambling to do. That's right. And and all the things that you mentioned, they need to submit their identity to the Lordship of Christ. They need to be and believe that they are who God says they yeah. are. And as Guy has uh, told us, as we've heard from people like Sam Albury as well, God doesn't always remove these desires and these compulsions yeah. that may be something that we live with and have to bring under his lordship on a daily basis for yeah. whatever reason if he doesn't remove that from us. So it's it's you know we need to let Which them know again, that is as well. Which is common to the Christian faith. Yes. I yes. I've I've been a Christian for 38 years. I continue to have some desires and orientations that are not in line with yeah. with God's best will uh, for me. And those desires and orientations continue to I need to continue to bring those to the cross mm-hmm. and submit to them to the lordship of Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's Martin Luther famously said, uh, it's not a sin to let the birds fly over your hair, uh, but it is a sin to let them make a nest in mm-hmm. your hair. Or no, how did it, how did it go? Oh, it's not great. a sin <laughs> to let the birds fly over your head or to have the birds fly over your head, but it is a sin to let, let them, them build a nest in your hair. <laughs> That's great. And I think the idea is that we're all subject to to desires that run contrary to the word of God and the yeah. will of God for our lives. Um, we're not accountable or we're not we're not uh, judged or condemned for for feeling those things, for having those desires pass through our hearts and our minds. But we are held accountable if we give them a, a resting place. Yeah. Even if, if even though they them. are sinful desires. Right. Yes. We're not saying that they're not sinful desires. Um, but they may persist. I have a number of persistent sinful desires that I must learn not to listen to. Yeah. That I must learn to to mute while raising the volume on the voice of my Lord yeah. and Savior Jesus yeah. Christ. That's, that's a part of my story. That's what, a part of my discipleship journey, and it's no different. It's that's what right. Paul's talking about in Colossians three: like yeah. put to death and keep putting to death. That's right. Right. That's it's right. An ongoing. Well, listen. Thank you so much, brothers, uh, for being with us tonight for the panel, and then also for this follow-up conversation. It has been extraordinarily helpful, both to our people here, and then also via the magic of technology, God willing to brothers and sisters all over the world. So again, thank you. You're welcome. And thank you, friends, for listening to this special episode of Into the Word. If you'd like to support this program, please consider leaving us a rating or a review on iTunes as it will help other people find and access these materials. If you're looking for more Bible teaching, you can find our entire library of content over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca, or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes store or on Google Play. You can also check us out on Facebook. I hope that you do. We have a growing community of Bible readers over there, and we post daily encouragements and conversation starters. I hope to see you there. And I hope to see you again real soon, right here, for another episode of End of the Word. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 